Well, turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 3. And just to kind of get a running start at what we're doing this evening, last week we looked briefly at Psalm 41. This is a psalm in which King David has suffered from some physical malady which he attributes to his own sin. He repented, he cried out to God for mercy, God graciously relieved him of his suffering. But the main body of this psalm we saw was a lament. It was a a complaint to God about how in the time of David's weakness, his friends betrayed him when he was at this low point. And we saw that David was a victim of several terrible things. He was the victim of wicked thoughts. His friends had cultivated opinions of David in which they literally got to the point where they wished that he was dead. He was the victim of what we call growing hypocrisy, that the, the words that his friends said to his face were just empty words. They, they weren't real. They, they weren't representative of a true friendship. He was the victim of group gossip. His friends gathered together, supporting one another for a betrayal, and in this case, a possible attempted coup on the government. We saw that he was the victim of what we called false omniscience, that these friends made a judgment that God was in fact against David and that he ought not to live. And we saw that he was the victim of what we called heartbreaking betrayal because it wasn't just a a group of friends that had come against him. There was one particular close confidant, one of his closest allies had deceived David and betrayed him. And what was missing from these so-called friends was the virtue of, that's derived from being a a repentant believer in the one true living God. And with our New Testament revelation and greater understanding now in the new covenant, we would say a regenerate believer who has placed their full faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. What was missing was that thing that the true believer in Christ has experienced from God and continues to receive. And that's what I'm calling the greatest Christian virtue, and that is unconditional love unconditional love. So last week, I just introduced what is really just one long message. I laid a foundation for us, and we found in Proverbs some qualities, foundational qualities of unconditional love, that it's internal. It's something that's real inside. It's consistent over time. It's genuine. It's dependable, and it's gracious. And we said that it can be possible, even for the believer in Christ, to to literally it may be not intentionally, but over the course of time, to stop viewing somebody as a, as a human being, to degrade and deride and think so little of someone that bitterness has now become ingrained in your heart, become just so a part of who you are that you can't view that person any other way. And we looked at Proverbs 21, verse 10, that the soul of the wicked desires evil and his neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes that a person has lost the ability to now view another person as fully human and becomes now utterly merciless in his dealings. I've seen this happen in my office. I've seen bitterness that is so deep and so, so ingrained that all attempts at repentance and even pleading for forgiveness just are met with deaf ears. And so it is possible And so for tonight, and then in one final message subsequent to this, I want to just continue where we left off. We're really just kind of going in Bible study format tonight. And what we're doing is just kind of deconstructing the component parts of unconditional love. And we're going to just kind of break this down, not in any particular order. 
And again, as I mentioned last week, I'm not addressing in these messages those rare and tragic circumstances in which someone literally doesn't want your love, in which bitterness has grown so much that the relationship is essentially broken short of the Holy Spirit's intervention. I am talking about close relationships within our families, within the body of Christ here, uh, relationships even in your workplaces, really all the venues in which you have a more than acquaintance relationship. Now we'll start here in the New Testament and work our way back to the book of Proverbs, just kind of Bible study style this evening. And so we're going to just break this down. What is unconditional love? There, there are some component parts to it. And so we'll break these down. Tonight we'll do five of them, if we can get to all of them. The first component part or element of unconditional love, we'll call this an image of God perspective. An image of God perspective. And we want to work our way toward this, so we'll start in James chapter 3, verse 1. James 3 begins with a very specific admonition to the church. And that is that very few of you, very few of us, should become teachers of God's people. There's a, there's a great accountability before the Lord. And so James 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That to stand before people, whether as a Bible study leader or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, in any capacity, and to proclaim, this is what God thinks. That's a weighty thing. It's heavy. It's, there's a gravitas to it. And it should never be entered into lightly. And so when somebody says, well, we should have a lot more teachers in the church, actually scripture would more often say we maybe should have fewer of them. It is a weighty thing. And so now, James is going to use the metaphor of the tongue, something we're very familiar with. But the metaphor symbolizes the words that we say. And he's going to use some illustrations of how, how powerful and influential the tongue of a teacher is. In verse 3, he says that the tongue is like the bit in the mouth of a horse that guides the whole animal. In verse 4, he says the tongue is like a small rudder which guides an entire ship. And in verse 5, he even personifies the tongue, brings it alive, so to speak, as if it were able to boast and to brag about how great it is. Look how small I am and yet what mighty things I do. And now, James will extrapolate that not only should the teachers in the church watch carefully what they teach, but the tongue should be watched carefully by everyone. And so he uses another word picture to accurately describe the destructive power of the tongue. He uses the picture of a forest fire. The second half of verse 5 in your Bible, it's probably set off as a new paragraph. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I mean, the destructive use of your tongue is, is pictured by James as so evil, so heinous, that he says that, that the tongue draws its power and its strength from hell itself. That the lake of fire is what set the tongue on fire. And he uses another word picture to very accurately describe the, the caustic effect of the tongue. And this is the picture of poison. In verse 7, he says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
What is, what, what is so horrible about poison? It's a little tiny bit, a little tiny substance that enters the body and has a, a catastrophic effect on the entire system, sometimes even leading to death. And so the, the illustration here is very apt. It's very apropos. And it's so often the words that are spoken in the relationship, particularly words that aren't followed up with repentance and restoration, which erode the foundations of that relationship, and, and they're powerful words. I'm not talking about disagreements, not talking about momentary lapses of holiness, which result in regretted words. I'm talking about words that get spoken, which reveal the true heart of one person toward another. This is the idea of what the Bible often calls reviling. Now, last year when I preached through our theology of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we spent a significant amount of time on this, spent a couple of weeks on the dynamics of abuse, and we looked at the idea of reviling in Scripture. And if we took all the major words in Scripture, most often translated in English as revile, there's 34 places in the, in the Bible, we came up with a spectrum of meanings. And it's, I think it's worth our time to review this. The meaning of revile can include to verbally curse someone and to characterize them as less, as insignificant, or as trivial. It can mean to have the heart attitude of contempt which becomes taunts and insults. It can mean to dishonor and disrespect verbally with an attitude of disdain. It can be a decision to reject and discard an object of scorn as confirmed by what comes out of somebody's mouth. It can be to verbally and abusively characterize someone as evil based on a misjudgment of that person. Another word in the Bible means to verbally intimidate and threaten another person with harm. And another word means to habitually reproach and insult another in a way which may even, in fact, demonstrate an unregenerate heart, an unsaved status, because they won't stop. The Lord Jesus taught that reviling reveals a murderous heart. This is serious stuff. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Saying you fool, this isn't just a momentary angry calling somebody a name. This is what you believe about this person, that that person is less than you. In Scripture, a fool is an unbeliever. And by saying this, you're, you're saying you don't deserve God's favor and the implicit assumption is, but I do. And so Jesus says that that is tantamount to murder. Jesus also said in Matthew fifteen eighteen, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. Have you ever said or had it said to you, I know I said that, but I didn't mean it? Jesus says that if you said it, you meant it, that it came out of your heart. Now, why is this use of the tongue which James condemns, which Jesus says reveals the true heart of a person, why is this so detested in the eyes of God? Why is the tongue which is used to verbally destroy someone so offensive to God? Well, we get to our reason in verses 9 and 10. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. To curse someone, this isn't just to call names. This isn't to have a momentary rudeness in your voice. This is to believe that someone is less than you, is lower than you, and it is to wish them harm. 
And James rightly says, why would you ever do that? Why is this so heinous in the eyes of God? Why is this so important? Because the person you're reviling, James says, is made in the likeness of God. And by the way, this isn't even addressing salvation status. You know, God never says if you insult a believer in Christ, that's terrible. If you insult an unbeliever, that's not quite so bad. He never says that. He's just talking about humanity in general. We are human beings. We are created as the highest representation of God on earth. We're the only creature that has been given God-like attributes. In fact, the, the image of God issue, this is the reason that God instituted the death penalty for murder in the first place. Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, if an atheist murders a Christian, the atheist ought to die for that crime. And if a Christian murders an atheist, the Christian ought to die for that crime. That is the death penalty. That is right. Because it is a, it is a weighty thing to take a life. Unconditional love starts and must start with the God-given presupposition of an image of God perspective that any person, any human being has inherent worth because God made them to have inherent worth. Listen, don't let the doctrine of total depravity, which we believe, but don't let that doctrine rob you of the lofty understanding, the lofty ideals centered around the fact that we're made in God's image. That's why it is a tragic thing when someone rejects Christ because they're made in the image of God. There's a second component or part of unconditional love we would call empathy. Empathy. And I want to have you turn to a very familiar passage to us, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. If you've been at Grace Bible Church for any period of time, your Bible probably falls open to Ephesians 4. I've been there a lot. To me, Ephesians 4 is like a campfire and we return to it to thaw our frozen hearts and to be warmed and reminded of the care that we're to have toward one another. Now, I refer to this passage often when I preach, but it's so compelling to me. It's so persuasive. It's so captivating. And it's so convicting because I, I can't live by it yet. Neither can you. But Paul exhorts the believers in Christ to live a life which demonstrates that their hearts have changed, that they have, they're a new person Verse 17 of chapter 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then beginning in verse 22, he, he says, Put off your old self and, and put on the new self. And then from verses 25 all the way through 32, Paul gives the qualities of how believers are to relate to one another, how we work out our salvation with each other. And it's really just a picture of how we wish we were and how we wish others would treat us. Walking through this quickly, he says we're to speak truthfully to one another. He said we're to be careful with our anger. He doesn't say necessarily never get angry. He says be careful with it, don't sin with it. He says we're to be honest with one another. We're to share with one another when there's a need. We're to speak in a way which builds up and gives grace to the hearer. We're to put away bitterness and anger. We're to be kind. We're to forgive in the same manner that we've been forgiven. But there's one quality that I want to hone in on. I want to draw our attention to. In verse 32, I had you turn to this to look at one word, essentially. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Now, 
Obviously, this is an internal attitude. Isn't, isn't the heart a beautiful and easily understood way to understand the, the inward person, who you are on the inside? This is making a decision to watch your mouth, but making a decision to watch your mouth only carries you so far. Ultimately, you have to make a decision to watch your heart. And then that determines what comes out of your mouth. But tenderhearted, this is a great word. It means in Greek, literally, to have compassion in your guts. To have compassion in the, in the inwardmost part of yourself. To have genuine affection and tenderness toward this person. And it is considered really one of the most godlike qualities we can have. Now, this particular word is only used one other time in the New Testament. And this, this other time, I want to read this to you. Listen to what it's surrounded by. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to everything all around it. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Here's our word, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Wow, I mean, tenderheartedness, it's, it's surrounded. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a refusal to be vindictive, to be vengeful, a decision to bless others verbally. I don't know about you, but that's setting the bar pretty high. That's a big deal. This is empathy that says, I'm going to see life from your perspective. I, I can see you as a human being made in the image of God who needs forgiveness and tenderness and love just like I do. It's saying, I can put myself in your shoes. I can feel what you feel. And it takes work, it takes effort, it takes time, it takes listening. This is what Jesus preached in Luke six twenty eight: Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And this is exactly the example that Jesus set from the cross when the nails are in his wrists and the nails are in his feet and the crown of thorns is on his head. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He empathized with his executioners. He empathized with those who were putting him to death. He said, they don't know what they're doing. In other words, he said, Father, don't be mad at them. Don't be angry with them. Don't hold this against them. There's a third component or part of unconditional love. And now we'll go to the Old Testament. Turn with me to Proverbs 22. And as you're turning there, the third component, we'll call it purity of heart. Purity of heart. Proverbs was originally given to Israel to give them the, the practical outworking of the law of Moses. Maybe put it this way. Proverbs is the, the commentary on the law, on how it's to work itself out. And while we're not under the law of Moses, the old covenant law represents the nature, the character, the person of God. That never changes. And just as Jesus summarized the law as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That hasn't changed. The law of Christ is given in the New Testament. That represents the mind of God. That represents the nature and the character of God. And so Proverbs, even though it's in the Old Testament, it really remains for us a, a wonderful tool, an inspired tool for us to flesh out and think hard about the commands which express our love to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've ever read through Proverbs, it's a difficult book. It's not one that just presents itself easily on a silver platter. Some Proverbs are easy to understand. Others make no sense. 
because we're meant to go through it slowly and to think about wisdom and to ponder it and to chew on it. And there's one proverb which addresses an interesting problem, and that is a problem which leaders have. Sometimes the very wealthy have this problem, and that is knowing which of my friends are actually real. Another place in Proverbs that says a man of much wealth has many friends, right? All of a sudden, you win the lottery, everybody on, on the planet is your best friend. But Proverbs 22, verse 11, tells a leader how to know who his real friends are. Verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Purity, this is a word that speaks of ceremonial cleanliness. That means that you're actually clean before Almighty God in your heart. You have confessed sin this morning before we receive the Lord's table, before we come together and worship. We give you an opportunity to confess sin because we don't want you to come before the Lord with a sense of filthiness, with a sense of bringing the sins that you committed five minutes before you got here into this room. We, we want to start fresh. And so that's what purity is here. This, this is a friend of the king who truly in his heart has the king's best interest in his mind and in his heart that his motive in the core of his being is genuine concern, genuine love for his friend, the king. And the result is, is that his speech is gracious. This is a word that literally means elegant. It's pleasant. Have you ever had somebody speak to you about a difficult thing and they're so good at doing this that it's only later that you realized you were actually confronted about sin because they were so smooth and so kind i wish i could do that better it means that even when maybe the friend of the king needs to have an honest conversation with the king he's able to be real and yet gracious and have charm and humility and deference such that the king knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a real friend who loves him and is invested in his well-being. Unconditional love has genuine, real heart motive involved of of purity, of being concerned for another's well-being. And this is a tremendously righteous motive for speaking to another about a concern or a sin problem that someone may have, coming to that person with an authentic desire to see that person not sabotage their own life not sabotage the life of others, rather than confronting them just because it's convenient or it makes you feel good at the moment. Is there an actual upside for this person, for me helping them with this? Is that my motive? And of course, this is in the spirit of the famous proverb found in chapter 27. Turn with me to Proverbs 27. And this proverb tells us not so much how to give correction, but how to receive it. And all of us, myself at the top of that list, need to be reminded of this. Proverbs 27, verse 6. It's the same idea. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This isn't hard to understand. When when correction comes with a mode of, of love and in a method of love, then that person has proven themselves to be a true friend. But there's now given the warning about being uncorrectable about always having an attitude of not receiving a rebuke of any kind. Verse 7 is this warning. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. 
This is one of those proverbs that if you just pull it out by itself, you, you wonder, what on earth is that there? What, what does my appetite have to do with anything? Well, verse 7 is how we understand verse 6. The person who believes that they need no help is full. I have no need of your help. And even when properly motivated and accurate help is offered, that's the honey, they don't want it. They, they, they know everything already. Ever try to tell somebody something and they already know everything? That's frustrating. That's difficult. But the person who wants to grow in the Lord, who desires the faithful wounds of a friend, to them, everything bitter is sweet. Even the hard-to-swallow conversations with someone who's close, it provides an opportunity for growth in Christ-likeness. That, that's the, wow, you just slashed me to pieces. Thank you so much for that. I, I needed that. That's a great attitude, one we all could try to cultivate. In fact, a mature believer cherishes this relationship in which someone can speak into his life or her, her life. It, it should be considered a treasure. Look at verse 9. Still in the same topic, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. It's a treasure. But if in the conversations that you play out in your mind before you have them, if those conversations, the one in your imagination, if they're withering your opponent with your strength, with your resolve, with 57,000 Bible verses in an effort to win an argument, everyone loses. Nobody wins in that. It's like parents with teenagers. If your goal is to win a, the relationship, nobody wins. Nobody wins. Everyone loses because the motive wasn't pure. But if you pursue relationships with those closest to you with a genuine heart motive, that I do have your good in mind. I have your Christ-likeness in mind. I have your happiness in life in mind then you are successfully loving unconditionally. It is not easy, but it is possible. There's a fourth component that we could look at. Turn back with me to Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, and this component we'll call bridge building. Bridge building. Are your thoughts and your interactions with another moving toward the idea of building bridges or putting up walls. Now, the fantasy that we have, and I've heard this in my office enough to know that this is fairly common. The fantasy is, is that if I just rant hard enough, if I'm forceful enough, if I talk long enough, if I'm rude enough, if I'm harsh enough, if I do something massive and huge to get somebody's attention, the other person will wilt in humble repentance. And that, that's the picture that we have, Right? We, we have this picture of, of somebody bending on their knees and saying, I ask thee for forgiveness. And it never happens that way. Actually, that sort of communication just puts the other person in a terrible position. They either have to enter into conflict with you because it feels like you're attacking them, or you submit to what they're saying, but now you've endorsed and, appro- and approved of the harsh, sinful nature with which they approached you. It puts you in a terrible position. And so what usually happens, Proverbs 18, verse 19 is what usually happens. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Now, it's the, the easy thing to do is just to throw forgiveness at this, to say, well, they should just forgive. And that is true. However, keep in mind that forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. The Bible commands you to forgive and to extend forgiveness on an endless basis. The Bible never commands you to extend trust on an endless basis. 
that yes, I can forgive you, but I pretty much don't trust a single word that's coming out of your mouth because of the history that, that I've seen a thousand times over. And so there is a sense in which you do not have to win forgiveness, but you may have to win their heart. You may have to win their trust again. I like what the New American Standard calls this, a, a brother offended is more unyielding than a citadel, a, a, a fortress, a strong city. Now walls have been put up, trust has been violated, and the more words that are spoken, those are just more bars put up in the windows. And now the relationship takes on a distance and a coolness that there isn't the level of trust and intimacy that used to exist. Yes, it is possible for one horrible conversation, one horrible verbal interaction to destroy a relationship. That is possible. And it may be that both people are sad about this. They, They both don't want this. But there's so many bricks on that city wall now that it just seems hopeless to try to break down those barriers. And what can often happen is that if you perceive lots of bricks in the wall between you and someone else, you try to knock down the wall by throwing more bricks at it. Maybe if I'm even harsher, maybe if I'm even louder, all of a sudden he'll wither in repentance. That's not usually what happens. Usually the other person's on top of the wall catching the bricks and building the wall higher. That's what's happening. So what does unconditional love attempt to do? Instead of throwing bricks at the wall, unconditional love builds a bridge over the wall. Just three verses earlier, we see this principle. Look with me at verse 16 of chapter 18. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. What is this? This is, this is winning somebody's heart. Building bridges may take time. It, it takes time to win someone's heart once again. It takes gentleness. It takes reaching out regardless of whether there's any reciprocal return by the other person. It, it means deciding to just be the type of friend you want to have. It, it takes laying aside self and thinking of the other. And this is not easy. This is not easy. It takes gestures of kindness and warmth that are received as genuine and real. So what is your default do you tend to default toward bridge building or brick laying? Because really we fall into one of those two categories. One of my favorite comedians says that the 24-hour grocery store floral section, you know that little refrigerator that's about six feet wide? It exists for husbands who are trying to get into their wife's good graces again. And you, you go in there at two o'clock in the morning and you see a bunch of guys with their shoulders slumped staring at the flowers, trying desperately to find something that'll work. And And this comedian says that there's a chart there on how many flowers are necessary for what type of offense. And so you you look at the chart and and the bigger the offense, the more the flowers. But we get down to a certain part of the chart and it just says, see jewelry chart. (laughs) That's true. But that's that's really true. It's it's building bridges. It's building bridges. and, And that's not easy. Because usually if you're building a bridge, you you have been wronged. There are legitimate things that you have, legitimate issues that you could bring up, but somebody has to decide to do it. It is not easy. One more component of unconditional love. We'll just call this one humility or the worst one ever. Turn to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, humility. How do you know when you have thought evil and wicked thoughts toward another person? How do you know when you've regarded him or her as an enemy? 
It's very simple. Before you can catch yourself, before you can compose yourself, before you can think clearly, when that other person suffers, you instinctively rejoice. That's how you know you've regarded them as an enemy. Yes, that person may in fact be under the discipline of the Lord, but there's no place in Scripture that says we're to be happy about that. Proverbs 24, look with me at verses 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. By rejoicing in the pain of another, this is an implicit assumption that you and God really got this one right. That you're on God's side against this other person, that you have placed yourself on the same level as the Lord. And that's not okay. Now, I've told this story before, but one thing I've learned as a pastor is that a congregation loves to hear stories in which their pastor learned a lesson. So this is really the epitome of, of Proverbs 24, 17, and 18. I'm seven years old. I got out of school early. My dad was a junior high vice principal, and as a vice principal, one of his duties was to administer corporal punishment to the rotten kids of the school. And he had a big wooden paddle. I'm seven years old, so to me it looks about this big. And one rotten kid was receiving this punishment, but I wasn't in school, and I was with my dad, and for some reason he let me be in the office to witness this thing. And so here he is spanking this kid who truly deserved it, and I did the unthinkable. I laughed. It wasn't a big laugh. It was just kind of a little, (laughs) just a little snicker, but it was enough. My dad was a very calm man. He excused the student, and then guess whose turn it was to get paddled? And I got a taste of my own medicine, and that was a good lesson because I remember my dad telling me, don't ever rejoice over somebody else's misfortune. I remember that. It is truly a wicked thing to take pleasure in the pain of someone else. And this is a certain indicator that you have regarded this person in your heart as an enemy. And I have seen this in the body of Christ. I've seen this in this church. I have heard people say, I just wish the Lord would would nail this person. I wouldn't say that out loud because of Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. You know, even when a criminal is rightly executed for horrible crimes, there is a sense of sobriety that this is a person who has forfeited his life. There's a sense of of weightiness to that. So what's the opposite of rejoicing when your enemy falls? The opposite is Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And to count others more significant, this isn't an outward religious act. This is, it's a word that means that it's a genuine attitude within my heart that I genuinely am going to believe that everyone around me is more important than me, cultivating the, the importance and the value and the worth of another person. And that's, that's hard. And especially in the midst of a difficult relationship. But we keep this in mind. Hebrews 12, verse three, consider him, speaking of Christ, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So those are just some principles for us, some component parts, but I want to do one more thing tonight. I want to finish our time this evening with a question. And the question is, what is your motivation for unconditional love? What's your motive? Is it to have better relationships? Well, that might be the result, but that's not the motive. I want to finish tonight by turning to the law of Moses, the book of Leviticus, 
Turn with me to Leviticus. This is a book in which holiness and being set apart for God is the main theme. We'll be in Leviticus 19. And again, while we're not obligated by the law of Moses because that that covenant expired at the cross, the, the principles contained in the law are timeless and they apply across the ages. And in Leviticus 19, the, the Lord continues giving the law of holiness and how to demonstrate that Israel is set apart, how to demonstrate that they're different. And just maybe skim along with me. I'm starting in verse three and, and I won't read all of it. I'm just gonna skim a little. Verse three, honor your father and mother and keep the Lord's Sabbaths. The Lord gives the fifth and the fourth commandments which summarize honoring God and honoring mankind. Verse four, he says, don't worship idols. Verses five, six, seven, and eight is how to offer a peace offering, which is a necessary sacrifice to the Lord to remain at peace with him. Verses nine and 10, make sure you leave food for the poor. That's what you do if you're set apart. Verses 11 and 12, deal honestly with one another. Don't rip each other off. Verse 13, if you're an employer, pay a fair wage and pay it in a timely manner. That was verse 13, rather. Verse 14, love and care for the disabled among you. Verse 15, justice ought to be impartial. Justice ought to be blind and not partial to wealth or riches. Verse 16, don't ruin others' reputation with slander. And verse 17, look at the internal character of the believer in Yahweh. Look at how he demonstrates holiness. In verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And verse 18 sums it all up, how a true believer demonstrates his status as a worshiper of God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is unconditional love. So I, I'm, I'm asking the question again, our, our closing question, what is your motivation toward unconditional love? Why? Why bother? Well, the answer is here in Leviticus 19, repeatedly. Verses one and two. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Look at the end of verse three. I am the Lord, your God. The end of verse four. I am the Lord, your God. The end of verse 10. I am the Lord, your God. The end of verse 12. I am the Lord. The end of verse 14, I am the Lord. The end of verse 16, I am the Lord. In verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what's the reason? I am the Lord. In Hebrew, eight times, I am Yahweh, 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 I am Yahweh. Did we catch the reason? The motive, God stating his name, the covenant name, that is the heart motivation to love your neighbor because his name is his character. His name is his reputation. His name is his worthiness. His name is his glory. His name is his authority. His name is his majesty. His name wraps into a single word, his holiness. And if we are to be his, then we too are to be holy. How can we be holy because he is Yahweh? We have an image of God perspective. We have empathy. We have purity of heart, bridge building, 
and humility. These are the marks of someone who has been changed by Christ. These are the marks of someone who has repented of sin and humiliation and degradation of self. I am not saying this is easy, but I am saying that this is somebody who has brought his burdens to the cross, somebody who has already committed to Christ to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. This is someone who has forsaken the constant pursuit of selfish gain and instead chosen to pursue holiness and to pursue it hard to the Lord in gratitude for his great salvation. And so we have these principles of unconditional love. And if I could summarize it in one encapsulated idea, the idea is is that we want to do our best to be an accurate reflection of the unconditional love that Christ has already shown to us. And it takes a lifetime to get there. It takes a lifetime of working at it. But that is our goal, to be an accurate reflection. Let me pray for you and for myself that we would obey these words. Our Father, we come to you now knowing that the bar has been set very high by your word. I know I fail at this and I I, I tremble before this. And I pray that all of us tremble before it. Lord, it is a weighty thing to imitate God. It is a weighty thing that you have told us. Be holy, for I am holy. Jesus said, you must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And so, Lord, we we understand the, the, the heaviness of this. And yet we have so many tools at our disposal. We have one another. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the church. We have our fellowship together. We have prayer. We have our service. We have all these wonderful tools at our disposal. And so, Lord, I pray for myself and for each person here that in this this season... And certainly in the coming year, Lord, that we would learn to grow more and more in unconditional love. And Lord, that we might pick those relationships that maybe give us the most grief and the most difficulty and that we might work harder at them. That we might be gracious mirrors of your kindness and mercy. And that we might even be a, 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 a source of wonder at someone else who wonders why we are treating them with such love and kindness. Lord, with relationships even represented in this church, perhaps even in this room, that are strained or perhaps even broken. I pray that this would be the time when bridges are built, when walls are taken down, when repentance is seen, forgiveness is given. Lord, I pray that we would not gather iniquity in our heart, that we would not gather to ourselves a a, a list of horrible sins against others that continues to follow us not to our condemnation and and removing of our salvation obviously but to our shame and to our loss of reward and so I pray Lord that we would put these principles into practice I pray for myself I pray for our leadership I pray for this whole church and as we are just now days away from the year 2019 Lord we pray that this coming year would be a year in which we show unconditional love. And Lord, we have, as you know, one more message to to look at this, and I pray that that would drive these nails even more solidly into our hearts so that we might be better reflections of Christ. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.